Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. It's Brendan here with Mark, and it's another week flying past markets. A week ending June the 15th, 2018. And, well, what have you been up to, Mark? What have you been up to? Well, I've had a pretty interesting couple of days, Brendan. I did. A, I was on the radio. Here in Newcastle, we have a, um, a Saturday morning show called Treasure Hunter, and the process is... Um, as a, a rather interesting, a couple of, for a couple of hours, we use cryptic clues to guide an ABC radio out broadcast car around the suburbs of Newcastle to find envelopes with new clues. Um, it's and we get obviously people to phone in and help us because bloody cryptic crossword clues are um, almost impossible to solve uh, without, um, particularly in a time frame. If I've given a date of ponder over them I probably could get them but each one of them has to be solved in about well two hours five clues about um 40 minutes and uh yeah it's hard to do so do you are you involved with this radio show every week mark or? no no it's about um they sort of uh um I suppose they've got a network of um of people who they uh who they get in I do it I, this time I've done it with um with Kate's dad, Walter, and uh, and um, he's pretty good because he's a taxi driver, a retired taxi driver, so he knows the streets, and that helps considerably. So, um, about once every, I don't know, three or four months, I rock into the ABC studios and um, and uh, I listen to um, another way my voice gets broadcast, which you know you've listened to your voice sounds much better than my voice i'm surprised they asked me back brendan but they keep doing it i think you underestimate yourselves there mark so are you have you ever been able to be one of the contestants or your banned from being a contestant since you're one um one of the judges i suppose no no it's a real it's um the the way that it works is that um the that uh the mystery clue writer supplies the clues to the uh, broadcaster Dan Cox in this instance and um, and then uh, then goes out and hides them around the countryside and so I'm one of the contestants we get the clues we answer you know we get phone calls and text messages from the listeners and um, and we direct the car to the next location so it's a little bit of um uh, uh, surprising pressure, and and when I listen to that show, when I'm not on the radio, geez, I just smash it out of the park. It's like Norman the Quiz on uh, on um in the evenings on the ABC radio. I regularly get seven or eight or nine questions in a row. But I'm sure when you actually listen to your voice on the radio, the curse of Norman strikes, and you can, your your mind just disconnects, and you can't answer those trivial questions. You can't do the cryptic crosswords. And you the just pressure. sit there going, I know, I know the pressure of a pressure. broadcast. We have, have it every week. <laughs> we have it every week. It's happening right now, Mark. It is happening right now. <laughs> well, speaking about pressure, my, my recent pressure was my youngest, Sophie, as regular listeners will probably know. She's just um, managed to sit and pass her driver's licence. She recently turned 18 and um, she headed off into the blue yonder mark and she went off yesterday on her first drive on her own in um, my wife's car and she came back safe and sound, I'm happy to report. She's a very, very um, methodical driver and she'll be very defensive driver so she'll be very good i'm sure but um she she went off and she went to a, a an office um supply place and bought a few pens and papers for her um for her study and then she headed off again today um out of the blue to um go and take one of her pick up one of her friends and they headed off for lunch so it started mark the um oh, the flight the from the nest the independence Yes. Um, no, it's great. It's good, but it's it's scary, and um, it's it's um, 
Well, it's life, isn't it? <laughs> it's life. So good on a safe, um, good stuff there. Yes. So that's um, that's what's been happening here. Um, and I think you wanted to chat. Um, well, uh, before we talk about the email that we received this week, and the emails keep flooding in, Mark. They keep flooding. I can hardly um, keep up with the tidal wave of it's, it's electronic snowing. communication. It is snowing. Yes. Um, um, just. For those of who are new um, subscribers or listeners, um, if you want to send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com, and please visit our little website there. It has all the previous episodes, and you can search based on the key terms. And this week we have part two of the dental disease, and you can look for part one, which was episode 26, I think, if I remember correctly, Mark. Um, so vetgurus.com is the website. So that's where you find it all, and you can subscribe there as well so that's the place to go so tell us about the email received mark always with, with the particular email that struck it was sort of like a bit of a theme brendan there's been a bit of concern about your um your episode of um of uh, temporary global amnesia um and a few people have um, at work have mentioned to me and we got an email from someone who said that um that they'd had a met a person in their 50s in their circle of contacts who um had had an episode and uh they were strongly in agreement with annie that you must not ride your bike anymore brendan um but they had an interesting tip for you they thought that it might be a good thing to take up dancing well i just want to let them know that you're already a marvellous dancer. Whenever we go to conferences, it's a battle to keep you off the dance floor. You just get the vague beat in the distance and your body starts swaying. So... I think you're looking. You're thinking of the wrong Brendan there, Mark. I think I'm the worst dancer in the world, and you know that. So don't, you can't fool me. You might be able to fool our listeners, but you cannot fool me. And um, I know my wife Annie said um, loves dancing. And when we first started courting, when we first started going out, um, she would try and pull me up on the dance floor. But she soon. Um, gave up on that um, but she stuck with me in other ways so good on her for that um, but yeah maybe maybe no I too I feel too self-conscious dancing Mark and the only time I tend to get up dancing is when I've probably had a little bit too much to drink um, is um, and maybe that's when you see me free flowing doing a bit of doing a bit of break dancing on the on the floor there of our veterinary conferences there Mark so that's probably what you're seeing it's not not the true me or maybe it is the true me I don't know <laughs> I don't know so yes those thanks for the email yes it's good to see our, our subscribers or our listeners are, are looking out for us and they're caring a little bit about us which is fantastic um, but we care more about you our listeners than you care about us that's for sure so we're going to jump into news Mark and you have a, a fascinating a fascinating tale about blue tongue lizards well they are one of our you know, m most common patients, and um, and we certainly see as well as owned blue tongue lizards. We see lots of um, wild ones who have misadventure, maybe come into contact with a dog or um, uh, some other um, accident. So they're very familiar, and and we really they're beautiful animals, and we really love them. So this story caught my eye, um, and uh, it's a um, a. A report on the start of a um, study, the first phases of a study on why the blue tongues um, have a blue tongue, Brendan. It would seem yes. to be like a, an amazingly obvious question, but um, there's not a single clear answer. And um, there's several aspects to this study. The first one that I was really, really interested in was that despite the fact that the blue tongues tongue is blue to us um it's not all blue to those other animals like predatory birds that might have a much wider spectrum of um of uh visible light so those species of predatory birds in particular um that could see into the uv would uh not call them blue tongue lizards they'd call them um well triple tongue lizards triple coloured tongue lizards because they um they have different spots on their tongue in the ultraviolet range. Um, so uh, the theory now goes that when blue tongues are threatened, um, the reason they stick out their tongue so far 
is to expose these three dots and the most proximal, the brightest one, the one that's closest to their glottis, um, that, uh, you know, the idea is that that scares the, um, draws the attention, scares the predator for a moment and gives the lizard a chance to scurry away in that, uh, in that moment of doubt. Um, but I was really fascinated by the way, um, like just figuring out the, the, um, the, the fact that there's different spots there, but then um, creating a model which has those spots, those colours in them so that they can do experiments on them was fascinating. But what another thing they've done in this process is to, uh, um, is to actually make a bunch of model predators. So I've got visions of them with, um, you know, uh, monitor lizards on a stick, birds of prey on a stick um, and as they move them to wild caught lizards um, in a large outdoor enclosure they measured the um, how how vigorous they were in their threat display of sticking their tongue out and unsurprisingly the lizards clearly recognized um, um, the most dangerous predators and stuck their tongue out the furthest with those ones um, so uh, it, it's a, a very ingenious um, series of experiments that have started to uncover some of the behaviours that might lead to um, that might lead to the colour. We still haven't got the final answer, and I look forward to um, the Lizard Lab, the the uh, the group of scientists who do this, who have started doing this study. I'm staying tuned for the next phase of their their work, Brendan. I'm looking forward to finding out the final reason why blue tongues have blue tones. It was a very interesting article there, Mark, and research there. And uh, the other thing I learned from that one is a, um, a particular phrase that I think I may have read somewhere in the past, but I certainly can't remember it in the recent past, and that is the, the term daematic behaviour is what they um, as describe it to or ascribe it to and that and it means any pattern or behavior such as suddenly displaying eye spots or or something like that to scare off predators so it is a version of daematic behavior so it's good to learn a new word or a new phrase every every so often mark to keep the brain going and keep the brain going is what article number two talks about and this one i i had trouble getting my head around this second one mark and that is that bees, our little buzzy friends, join an elite group of species that understands the concept of zero as a number. And it blew my little mind a little bit, which wouldn't take much to do, I don't think, Mark. But when it comes to bees, it seems that nothing really does matter. And I, I was reading through the actual research and the study on it, and apparently there are four stages of understanding what zero means, Mark. And stage one is understanding zero as the absence of something, such as no food on your plate. Stage two is understanding zero as nothing versus something, such as a light being turned on or a light being off in a room. And these are more complex as we go down the th four stages. Mark. Stage three, understanding that zero can have a numeric value and belongs at the low end of the positive number line, so zero, one, two, three, four, etc. And stage four is understanding that zero can be assigned a symbolic representation like 1 minus 1 equals 0 and, and used in mathematics. And the new study apparently shows that honeybees have achieved stage 3, Mark, of understanding the concept of 0. What does it mean? Nothing. Is my that. It means nothing. It means that people spend a lot of time um, trying to work out the meaning of 0 and the meaning of the universe, as we know, is 42, as those of us who have read certain science fiction books. Um, but the next step in this research, apparently, is, is working out how small and seemingly simple brains, like those of bees and probably podcasters, represent zero in a neurological sense, Mark. So they want to expand their research and do some other little tests um, with them. And... 
I won't go into detail, otherwise we'll spend the whole um, episode on this, about the particular methods that they had where, where bees had to go up to little plates and to choose um, different different aspects of whether this is the zero concept or whether there was one, two, three, etc. It's quite fascinating how they how they worked this out. Um, and, um, yeah, I just... Um, it was it pretty blew- cool too. That the um, yeah. species that did have a concept of zero, like I, um, if you, I probably wouldn't have guessed, you know, you, some some primates, yes, um, rhesus monkeys and vervet monkeys, and a single chimpanzee, and a single and, African grey parrot. Yes, yes, and bees. I saw that. Yeah. That's it's it is fascinating. It it was a. Um, yeah, it just amazes me some of the research that is out there. So that is article number two, Mark. Now, number three is you're going to talk about names and you're going to talk about why most dolphins are called Bruce, I think. Well, they're not all called Bruce. They all have oh. different variations of Bruce, apparently. Um, and this comes from um, some wonderful um, research of the uh, dolphin pods that occur in Shark Bay in Western Australia, um, where uh, pairs and trios of unrelated male dolphins will often work together in an alliance um, to herd single females for mating opportunities. Um, And so it's sort of um, uh, um, interesting that that they have these strategies to maximise their, you know, genetic potential. But one of the cornerstones of these um, alliances um, is the is the understanding of the concept of individuals and um, and the, the the bonds, the identification, and the friendship and alliances that arise because they can recognise individuals. And um, interestingly enough, these. Uh, these individual names are, are vocal. Um, you know, obviously the sound under the water, the thing that we all hear f- flipper make when we listen to um, that uh, famous television story, television show when we were young. Um, bottlenose dolphins do develop an individual vocal label that is known as their signature whistle, which they use to broadcast their identity around the, the, the to the local dolphins. They're not born with this signature whistle. Rather, they develop it over the first few months of life um, and that it becomes unique to them amongst their companions and they specifically draw away from other sounds that they hear so that it develops that, um, that unique thing. And for a while, um, it was thought that um, these, uh, um, these signals that over decades the dolphins would converge to a, um, on a shared signature whistle. Um, but now it uh, would appear that males advertise alliance membership to competing males or to sexually receptive females through the use of their, um, you know, it's almost like a vocal badge or group label. Um, so it's it's a, a really interesting thing to think that uh, when they're under the water, um, uh, just you know, chasing fish or uh, looking for an opportunity to mate, they might be actually swimming along at quite a speed, singing out Bruce, Bruce, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, another fascinating little study there. I mean, it's another one that gee, it would be great to have your name to one of these sort of studies. Um, maybe one day we'll get um, we'll, we'll get a um, a gig for the Ig Nobel Prize, Mark. That's what I'd love to be able to um, um, be known as. Um, and for those of you who don't know the Ig Nobel Prize, it, it's for for scientific study of, of potentially. Not that this one was useless um, um, studies, and it includes. I'm trying to remember some of the classic Ed Noble prizes. I think one was the study of lint inside the belly button um, was probably the one I always remember, which was a great study um, that was done. I think that was done by Dr. Carl Krasniewski here right. in Australia. That that particular one, yes. So we need to keep thinking of fun things to study because. Because why it keeps us amused, doesn't it, Mark? Um, the next story is probably not quite as amusing, but it's a little bit uplifting, Mark. Potentially, 
carrying on from our um, theme from last week, trying to provide some more exciting or, 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 or uplifting stories. And this is nearly two years later, the world's saddest polar bear, no longer sad with a question mark. And this was about, it was, it was the power of the people, this one, I think, um, I think Mark, and this was, where was it again? It was um, Pizza, the name of the polar bear, who was found living in deplorable conditions at an aquarium in the Grandview Mall in Guangzhou, in city in southern China, and it was showing stereotypical behaviour. It was on its own in this tiny little enclosure, and it became the focus of media attention in the summer of 2016 after footage surfaced of him alone, lying in his bare concrete enclosure in the shopping mall. And he was also um, exhibiting behaviour such as biting and pouring at an air vent as well. And an online petition was started where more than one million people signed calling for the release of the world's saddest polar bear. And there was a few organisations that that um, contacted the... Um, the the um the owners of the mall and suggested they they would take over but a couple of months later they learnt that he would be temporarily sent back to his birthplace which was determined to be Tianjin Haichang Polar Ocean World in northern China while they uh, repaired or they renovated his mall enclosure the good news is Mark that um, they decided that they shouldn't renovate the enclosure and they shut it down completely and now he is living with his mum so and they've spotted him and his mother actually engaging in play behavior which is fantastic although the pictures they have online of the the enclosure he's in there with his mother is a, a pretty small enclosure as well but I suppose it's a small win mark but I think it shows the power of sometimes putting your name and or your hand up or putting your name or your signature to a petition to get things done because unless you get your voice out there and you actually kick up a fuss nothing will happen will it mark I think it's one of the the um, good things about um I know there's we talk often about the negative aspects of social media and I do think we've got to be a um, you know, do our research and look at the circumstances behind each case we put our signature to. But I do think it um, there's certainly a, a way that social media facilitates our um, contribution to change. And if we're careful about the way we use that power, I think um, it can be a force for good, Brendan. Yes. So there we go. An, a, an actual positive story from me for once, or a semi-positive story for once. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my best, Mark. I'm doing my best, and, and as another as as another um, listener said to me, um, don't be so cynical with your reports. Well, there you go. I'm not very cynical there, am I, Mark? I've, I've no, always thought of you as a glass half full sort of guy. You're, you're always looking for the positives in things, Brendan. That's that's right. That's right. We can fool some of the people some of the time. I've got a review. I've got two reviews, Mark. Before we jump into our main, our main subject this week, so I've got two reviews. One's a veterinary related, and one's non-veterinary. So that I'm going to, I'll start with the non-vet related one, and that is a book, Mark. I don't know whether you've read this book. It is Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, which is a bit of a classic, this one. It's a classic science fiction book, which was, I think it was published in 1953 by Ray Bradbury, and he was a pretty prolific American science fiction author. The reason why I like this book is it's about books, and and the main, not without giving anything away, and I finally finished it this morning. It's actually one of the good things I like about this. It's, it's an easy read, and it's a fairly quick read, only been about 160 pages long. Um, and it's not just, it's certainly not a hardcore science fiction book. It's more about literature and life, um, because it's set in a dystopian future, probably, I forget when it was supposedly said, um, 200 years in the future, I think, where it's a story of Mon Mont Montag or Montage, who's a fireman. And the whole history of firemen has been rewritten or fire people, they're all firemen in, in this book, in that firemen go out to, to actually start fires and 
they go out and burn people's houses down or, or, or the contents of the houses if people are harbouring books because in the future books are evil um, because you shouldn't be reading books. They, they, they are bad. They, they teach you things you shouldn't be listening to. And a lot of the, a lot of the information in this um, novel really struck home because it talks about people traveling. And I don't know how he predicted this traveling on, on, on in cars and on trains and just having a little earpiece like we do today, the iPods or whatever in, or, or your earbuds or earpods in, in your ear and you do not listen to anybody else and you just listen to propaganda as you're travelling to work and nobody takes the time to stop and smell the roses and listen to get out in nature and, and, and listen to the birds and the animals. So it's quite, quite an interesting novel. So it talks about it talks about why we should have books and... And, well, I'm not going to, I was going to jump and, and give away a bit of a spoiler there. I won't talk about it at all. So it's called Fahrenheit 451, Mark, because according to the book's tagline, Fahrenheit 451 is the temperature at which book paper catches fire and burns. And that's what firemen do. They go and burn books. And the whole history of the fire departments um, going back in, it's an American book, so it goes back to the um, origins of, of American society, is um, the very first firemen um, burnt books. Um, there was no time when firemen put out fires um, it was quite quite interesting and novel the way it was approaching it. So, um, I think it's a great little book. Um, it's and don't think that you shouldn't read it if you if you think Gee, it's a science fiction book. And I don't like science fiction books. As I said at the start, it is an easy read and um, a fun read, and it makes me think. So, Fahrenheit four five one and my score mark is a very solid nine point four five one is my score mark. <laughs> Uh, Fahrenheit 451. So that's my book review this week and my vet review, it's very quickly, is is something that um, I use quite frequently in the clinic and that is it is a fencing wire, Mark. It's pieces, pieces of fencing wire and I use fencing wire as stylets for ET tubes um, to stiffen up the ET tubes when I'm trying to intubate rabbits, ferrets, rodents um, and all those little furries and also the small um, reptiles as well so I, I cut off a length of fencing wire that f and, and just blunt the end and cut off the correct length to fit down the ET tube the middle of the ET tube and then bend it and it works fantastically so um, as a ET tube stylet because it, I, I find it difficult to, to actually find stylets that you can purchase for these small ET tubes, if if at all. Um, and it has lots of different uses as well, the old um, fencing wire, Mark. So, you know, who needs an orthodontist if, if, when you've got a bit of fencing wire if I'm, and if I'm not. a little bit of super glue? You know? um, my girls' teeth are very straight, Mark. They might have been bullied at school, but their teeth are very straight due to fencing wire and super glue. So there you go. And, and, and your car goes pretty well too, Brendan. That's right. The exhaust is holding up pretty well with a bit of fencing wire holding it up there. So, and um, I can, and we won't talk about breaking into cars with fencing wire. That will um, that should be on a different type of podcast, there, Mark. So there you go. That's my review: fencing wire for endotracheal tube stylets. I think it's a great tip, Brendan, and um, I, I particularly think it's important because when we do um, our our you know those. Uh, unusual pets that we have that are more difficult to intubate the rigidity of the et tube plays a critical role in my experience in getting it in place particularly in the smaller patients um so i think uh the our stilettes uh, that come with the uh the small et tubes often end up you know tied in knots or bent or um and so having a good replaceable because you're not going to discard those tubes after only one use so having a, a backup stilette like that is an excellent thing brendan good tip. yeah and it and it and it can be just you know i mean i was being a bit silly there but but it it, it can just be going down to the local hardware store and just just finding particular wire grade wire that works and and it's dirt cheap and you can buy a little roll of it and it is 
literally what I use is is the fencing wire in my practice for those stylets. And and my tip for intubating some of these small mammals, um, especially the rabbits and especially uh, ferrets, is to bend the very last half a centimetre, one centimetre of that um, of that stylet. Um, so the bit that's Entering the the, the glottis um, first it has a has a real kink on it, almost like a gooseneck on it, um, and 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 I just find that so much easier being able to intubate them when you have that nice stiff little bit of wire in there um, to introduce it. Otherwise, you end up with that. If you don't use the stylet, I've always found that more often than not that that the ET tube will just be bouncing off the glottis and, and, and heading down the esophagus instead. So, yeah, so that's my little tip there. Well, let's jump on to our main topic, which is part two of the rabbit dentistry. And I think if, if listeners haven't listened to part one, they should stop now, go back to episode 26, listen to that, and then start up again at this point, which is around about 30 and a half minutes in this podcast. And we, in the last episode, that episode 26, we spoke about diet and dental disease, Mark, and, and just the signs of dental disease primarily. So I think in this one, we'll talk about a little bit more detail about the equipment and, and dealing with these overgrown or, or abnormal incisors and, and, and um, the basics of burring down the cheek teeth as well, Mark. So why don't we jump into the equipment, Mark? Do, would you like to sort of um, go through some of the gear that you recommend um, having on hand for the basic dental work in, in rabbits? Well, I think the key thing for me, the big, the you know, game changer, as it were, were um, were the the gags. If you um, if you try to do this work without adequately gaining access to the mouth, it becomes tiresome, infuriating, time-consuming and frustrating. You've got to get uh, um, uh, the, the suitable sorts of gags to open those um, the teeth up um, and, um, and have the, the cheek pouch expanders in place so that you've got an excellent view. And I even have my um, magnifying glass on so that um, uh, my magnifying glasses with a light so I can see even better. But um, it is really important to get excellent access, to get an excellent view. So the appropriate gags are the first thing that we use. The next thing is that um, uh, having we have the uh, IM3 dental unit um, and there is a uh, rabbit. Uh, so their um, uh, dental drill, we can get an attachment for which the rabbit um, uh, burr can fit. Um, and that, once again, just having the right tool makes that job immensely easier. And that um, that particular bit um, has a shroud which protects um, uh, nearly two-thirds of it from uh, rotating against the gum or the, the uh, buccal mucosa. Um, and, um, and, of course, that's one of the things you, you want to make sure when you're putting a a rotating burr into the mouth to work with the teeth that you don't do any damage to the the tongue or the gums um, and we find that uh, that those two pieces of equipment um, facilitate things dramatically Brendan I think you're using the same bits of gear aren't you yes I am um, the Pouch or cheek dilators, as you mentioned, I think, yeah, they're just critical. Without them, it just opens up that mouth so fantastically, doesn't Mark? Um, and and then they're not expensive. The little dental, the rabbit dental kits that you can buy, they're probably what two to four hundred dollars for the basic kit, which includes a couple of cheek dilators, um, the gag to open up the open up the oral cavity there, and um, um, the the incisor and the cheek teeth luxators. But, yes, we have the IM3 unit as well, Mark, and um, we find that's um, excellent. And those long, they're just called rabbit um, burrs, aren't they, um, which is that long tape, um, long uh, diamond tip burr is, is indispensable for it. And I'd certainly use the protective sheath around it, um, I know there are some vets who deal a lot with rabbits who prefer not to use a protective sheath. I do, but I think it's 
horses for courses, you need to be very careful about protecting that soft tissue if you don't use the protective sheath that's made specifically for it. Um, and if you don't, I think they use other methods by using a a, uh, a just a little a, a little flat piece of metal to keep the tongue out of the way or the cheek out of the way when they're they're burying down the teeth there. But yeah, um, I use the same sort of gear, so we don't need a huge amount of gear compared with dental gear that might be required for for removing um, complex um, dental issues and 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 um, canestial teeth in dogs and cats, etc. We don't need a huge amount of gear there. The other the other important ones are those incisor luxators, although, as we'll mention in a second, you can get away without using those luxators to remove the incisor teeth of a rabbit and just use a bent needle. Um, so just using an appropriate gauge needle, a 22-gauge needle, a 20-gauge needle, an 18-gauge needle, um, depending on the size of the rabbit. And that's what I did use for a fair number of months or or maybe even a year or two before I managed to come across the incisor luxators mark for extracting incisors of rabbits. But I'm jumping ahead of myself a <laughs> bit here, Mark. So let's talk about incisor malocclusion in rabbits. And we tend to see two patterns or two causes of it, don't don't we, Mark? Um, so do you want to mention those or, or summarise those two um, conditions sure. or, or syndromes? Um, we, we generally um, classify them into our acquired forms or our uh, congenital forms. And so much like our dogs, um, uh, there have been specific breeds of rabbits, the miniatures, who have, because it looks cute, they've been bred to have those squashed-in faces and, and those altered anatomies of the, um, of the face have led to situations where some of our rabbits are born with um, malocclusion of the, uh, of the incisors. And so um, we've definitely seen um, those uh, those rabbits where the incisors never ever meet up they never wear against each other and so um, they grow um, in very elongated fashion they often um, uh, diverge so that um, they can end up with quite curly looking tusks at times um, and it's it's amazing how long they can survive um, on you know you would think that would very quickly become the case they couldn't eat, uh, but they survive for quite a long time on uh, on getting around those um, incisors and um, getting food into their mouth, but they do reach a point where they can't do so anymore. The other group of rabbits are the ones who are born normally um, and for a variety of reasons acquire um, uh, incisor malocclusion as they get older. Most commonly, I think, um, it's a bit of a complicated thing, um, but it often has to do with um, the wear, the, the, the nature of the food that they eat, the um, fibrous uh, the forces associated with um, cutting and chewing fibrous foods and, um, and also the amount of calcium that's in their food, the amount of protein, um, the association of... Uh, um, of uh, food that doesn't require a lot of work from the incisors and um, the, uh, the resources that allow remodeling of the bone very quickly allow the rabbits to develop um, malocclusion. And, um, and, of course, sunlight may play a role in that as well in that uh, it may be looking at a particular form of um, a metabolic bone disease in some of these rabbits. Um, but... On the outside, those rabbits can look very much the same. The, the incisors can diverge. They don't meet with the necessary force. Um, they uh, can spear straight out in front. They might not curl around at all. Um, and, uh, and, and as a consequence, eventually the rabbits are unable to eat. Whenever we do see rabbits with incisor malocclusion, Brendan, we are always making sure we do a good thorough examination of the rest of the mouth because while we do see some rabbits that um, that have isolated in incisor malocclusion, particularly those short-faced dwarf rabbits, um, there's a, the, there are a large number of rabbits where the incisor malocclusion is just a clue that something more serious is going on back with those cheek teeth. And so a good thorough examination, both intraoral and radiographic, is important for those rabbits as well. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So dealing with these congenital ones or these young rabbits that um, um, have the really severe incisor malocclusion, as you just mentioned there, Mark, and we do the thorough examination If we and if we determine that those cheek teeth, those premolars and molars, are normal, then we jump in usually and recommend to the client virtually 9 out of 10, if not 10 out of 10 cases, and suggest we extract all those incisors. And remembering we have six incisors for rabbits. We have four upper incisors. The two smaller ones sitting behind the primary incisors are commonly called the peg teeth, and we have the two lower incisors. So we extract all six incisors. And the good news with this is, assuming that everything goes to plan and they all are extracted um, without any, any problems, and we'll talk about potentially dealing with ones that fracture in a moment, those rabbits do fantastically. I find most of them do fantastically and they go on, have lots of rabbity fun and a fair percentage of these, well over 50% of them, probably 60 to 70%, I'd say, can manage to eat a normal hay and vegetable diet that we, that we stress um, for the use in rabbits. Some of them struggle a little bit, so I, I recommend to clients initially, especially during that first recovery period when they're learning how to cope with dealing with um, without any of those incisors, the owners may be chopping up the, the, the vegetables and chopping up the hay to smaller pieces um, because those incisors are just designed to act as scissors really, to, to chop up the food roughly, to pass to those cheek teeth to then be ground down thoroughly um, and then swallowed. So it's amazing how many of these rabbits do eventually cope and manage to get to the stage where you don't need to even chop up their food at all. Um, but some of them you do, um, but that's fine too because a, a large percentage of them still can be on the hay and veggie diet which is what we recommend as a good diet for all rabbits. So extracting these incisors, it's a little bit of a tricky one to sort of walk people through, isn't it, Mark, over, over a podcast? But um, We're we have give it those. A crack, though, Brendan. We will give it a go. So I'll jump in a little bit and then you can um, correct all my errors of um, visualisation and, and um, explain how it should be done in just a moment. So, so we can either use a bent needle, like I mentioned. So if we are using a needle, then we're bending a, um, a appropriate size needle to approximate the curvature of that incisor. Um, if we're not using the needle, ideally we're using the incisor luxators, which is specifically made for the job. So for listeners, um, just jump on jump on Dr. Google and look up Incisor Luxator, um, do a search for that and you'll find um, some quite, um, you'll find some pictures straight away that will show that those, those particular Incisor Luxators. And the important bit is to break down the periodontal ligament on both sides, especially the lateral and the medial sides, Mark. I find that they're the two aspects that you really need to, to break down the most. And if you manage to shear off that ligament, um, and, and, and so we're placing that periodontal, uh, the, 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 um, the luxator um, medially and laterally on, on, on either side of those um, of the tooth you are trying to extract. And we're remembering these are very long-rooted um, teeth, so um, don't be afraid of popping that incisor luxator right down into the, into the cavity then. And we're wiggling the tooth. We're wiggling it from left to right, up and down. And we're, we are also breaking down the ligament on that rostral and caudal aspect as well. Um, but it's especially the medial and the, and the lateral aspect that it, is, it has the most hold there. And we're taking our time. I, and the, when I'm explaining it to vets or, or veterinary nurses or technicians who are watching me do the procedure, I stress the most important thing is to not rush. Take your time, have a bit of a chat to the nurse while you're doing it, break down the tooth a little bit, put a bit of pressure one way, hold it there, release the pressure, move the tooth to the other side, put a bit of pressure on, release the pressure. So just take your time because I think not taking your time is the enemy as far as breaking these teeth um, and trying to rush. So if you're in a rush, delay the procedure and do it another day. Um, if the tooth does break, don't do what you would 
potentially do with a dog or a cat that has a broken tooth. Don't try and dig it out. Leave it. Wait for that incisor tooth to grow out, which may take several weeks, and then have another attack of it later. And my usual comment to clients is um, majority of them we, we manage to remove on the first go occasionally because we may we may be dealing with diseased teeth which is why we're extracting them um if we have to attack it again um it may happen again but third or subsequent goes at trying to remove a teeth is free so i tell the client the first go is is full charge the second go is full charge if we're unfortunately we have to try and remove that tooth again but if we have to try and go in there and remove that incisor tooth again it's free and touch wood i don't think i've ever had one where i've had to go in um, the third time mark so that's sort of a couple of tips there there are a few more tips and i'll let you um talk our listeners through your method of removing the incisors mark and and touch on the things that i've i've forgotten there well as usual brenda they're great tips just um and the take-home message i find is um every time i've stuffed one up it's because i've rushed um, and your tip to just slow down and take your time that's the best one and in 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 the way of the way that we describe techniques, I'm going to tell you the other ways I can stuff up. With the um, tooth, uh, when we're manipulating teeth in other species, I'll often use a um, uh, almost like a rotation um, to try and help break down the tooth root. Um, I'll use a, um, a, a torsion along the long axis of the tooth. But obviously with the curve of rabbit's teeth, that is a no-go. You cannot rotate the tooth. You have to, as you said, rotate it left, right, up, down, left, right, up, down. Um, and if you do rotate it in an, in an attempt because of its curve, you obviously can't do it along its whole length, but you will break that. That will facilitate breaking that root. The other thing that um, that I've managed to stuff up with these is that um, you, if you do not have enough time to take things slowly and you're feeling the pressure that you've got to get this done quickly, the um, the tooth root luxator um, is the rabbit ones. They're that sort of, you know, they almost look like a miniature samurai sword, that curve that fits the tooth. Or a scythe. Yes, I think exactly the yes. word I was looking for. Um and um, it is, they are thin uh, because the space is relatively small. And if you are over-enthusiastic, you're in a bit of a rush, you're trying to drive it into that periodontal um, ligament further and having haven't taken the time to break it down. You, I have broken one of those tips once. Fortunately, I did have a uh, backup and so I could get the tooth out and the piece of metal came out with it. But um, and I just remind people that, Brendan's great advice, taking your time, taking it a tiny step at a, a stage um, and not feeling that you've got to rush it, um, that will prevent making the mistake that Mark made. <laughs> um, yes, take your time. And I, and I must admit, there's been several times when I have not taken my time and guess what? Those are the times that we end up with a broken incisor tooth there. Um, so my only other comments, which I think is a bit beyond the scope of this particular podcast, maybe we'll cover it in a in a future one, is I now as a routine do um, local anaesthetic blocks um, in these cases and that's a little bit too tricky to describe in a podcast but if people search online or they end up coming to one of our unusual pet conferences here in Australia. We often run lab classes or wet lab classes where we um, show the methods of of doing the, um, and that's quite simple once you've learned them, um, the local anaesthetic blocks to help provide regional anaesthesia um, in these rabbits as well. So what do we do for these cheek teeth marks? Oh, um, finalising the, the incisor remover mark. I know some people do and some people don't, but my preference is to place an absorbable suture over the sockets um, where the teeth have been removed. I put one suture, just a simple mattress suture um, on uh, where the upper teeth have been removed and one simple suture across the sockets on the lower teeth because I do find that those sockets, because they're very 
deep sockets where we've extracted those teeth to tend to end up filling up with all sorts of stuff, including hay and, and food and, and potentially pus post-operatively. Um, so my preference is to put um, to close over those sockets a little bit. Do you or do you not no, no, close I, over I, those I'm sockets? I'm the same as you, Brendan. I just do a little bit of um, uh, loosening of the ginger on the um, the. the buckle side um, and um, and put a single interrupted usually just to seal over those um, those sockets because I do think we've seen cases where that hasn't happened and we've ended up with uh, material impacted into the deep cavity of the empty tooth root. I've got a question for you, Brendan. Um, yes. Do you do anything to um, stop the tooth from regrowing? What is there a, a technique for a uh, that um, that uh, people need to ablate that um, germinal epithelium, or what happens? Okay, so there's two two schools of thought with this. I don't do anything as far as um, one of the one of the treatments that's sometimes recommended and some people use is they they take that tooth that's been extracted and then they put it back into the socket um, and wriggle it around a bit with the thought that you are ablating the the germinal tissue that may have been left there that may cause that incisor tooth to regrow. Um, my thoughts are um, reasonably strongly that you shouldn't do that because I have seen um, reports and pictures from a from a US um, rabbit vet who I, who I trust um, who has shown um, referral cases that have been sent to her after vets have done that particular technique where it has ended up pushing that germinal tissue in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways. So she's ended up with um, rabbits being referred back to her where the teeth have regrown, but they've regrown backwards and sideways and upside down. And, and she's shown me pictures of, of teeth growing into nasal cavities and all sorts of places. So I think strongly that if, if the tooth is removed correctly in the first place you'll know if it's come out correctly because you'll see that germinal tissue there um, and there'll be no need to then pop it back in or, or do any other sort of process to ablate um, the, 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 the growth area there because you've removed the tooth in its entirety it does look like um, do, and do, do you reckon i reckon you get them out properly and they look a little bit like a a matchstick with that reddened growth germinal epithelium at the end Absolutely, yes. So you, you know you've done the job right with that particular tooth as soon as it pops out and you get that very satisfying sort of feel both when the um, the, the ligaments have broken down and, and the tooth suddenly becomes a lot looser um, and as you're pulling it out and the other, the other tip too that we forgot to mention is as you're finally pulling and extracting that tooth out that's been loosened to pull it out on the angle, pull it out at the same angle that the tooth is growing out on. So pull it out at, on a curve um, and that maximises um, um, the chance of bringing it out um, in its entirety. And, and yeah, it sort of pops out and you see that um, germinal tissue there, like you said, a bit like a match head and um, all is good with the world, Mark, um, when that happens, when you see it like that. And if, I'm, if it has broken, like I said earlier on, just leave it extract all the other teeth hopefully they'll all come out fine those other incisors and then wait for that um, incisor tooth to grow out in several weeks and then anaesthetize the rabbit again and, and extract it at that time don't try we've to dig it around of those, we've had a, to do a couple of those second ones like you we haven't had to go to the freebie yet but um the 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 good thing too about uh, being patient if you do think you've lost the tooth root is that Subsequent extractions are not nearly as difficult. The periodontal ligament doesn't seem to reform nearly as toughly. Um, and so once you've let that tooth grow and you've got something to work with that's sitting outside the, the gums, um, it's often much easier to get it out in its entirety at subsequent goes, in my experience. Yes, yes. And then post-operatively, uh, as 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 people are probably expecting, what we're going to say is analgesia. So, I've done the local anaesthetic block. It will have had a uh, non-steroidal perioperative 
operatively, probably meloxicam. It will be going home on a course of meloxicam. And that's probably all I tend to do, Mark. Do you do you fill them full of other um, um, part of the pre-anesthetic or the anesthetic protocol would, would have been an opiate as well? Um, do you send them home on tramadol or opiates or, or just um, meloxicam or equivalent? No, we, we, you know how keen I am to maintain an outstanding level of analgesia in these animals and I'm confident that when that's done well they return to eating more quickly and recover more quickly but I don't find with as you've highlighted the local anesthetic and um, a good non-steroidal I, I don't I find that they recover very very quickly and uh, and I think often these malocluded incisors are painful of their own accord and so I think that removing them relieves some pain and then the animals return to eating relatively quickly. Yes, yes, I agree. So I think in the couple of minutes we got left, we might mention, and we'll have to do a part three on dental disease in rabbits, covering the more complex treatment methods like marsupialization and dealing with the tooth root abscesses, which everybody panics about. Um, let's talk a little bit about, Mark, um, the um, reshaping of the cheek teeth. So what's your preferred technique? And do you want to walk through the listeners about just um, removing some of the spurs, um, the uncomplicated spurs and the theory behind what we're doing there um, with the malocluded um, cheek teeth or those dystrophic cheek teeth? Well, the typical sorts of ones are the um, lower incisors which spear into the tongue and the um, uh, incisors, the lower cheek teeth which spear into the tongue and the upper cheek teeth which um, uh, go into the um, the gums and uh, and can create quite considerable ulcers. We, we had one this week where um, the end of the, um, the spur was buried so deeply in the tongue that um, it, uh, we couldn't, we had to cut across it, we couldn't just burr it down from the end, we had to cut across it and then remove it from the tongue. And you can only imagine how painful that must be. Um, but once we identify a tooth um, that has that um, spur, we either cut across it in the case of the rabbit from this week or start at the end and burr it down until um, we get them to... Uh, I always uh, like to get them down to the just above the gum line so the crown is reduced all the way down um, and we try and make some arrangement um, we're trying to look at the way that the angle of the um, the occlusal surface um, might be arranged so that it's uh, likely to lead to more normal wear um, and certainly we've had um, cases where we've been able to decrease the frequency um, of the recurrence um, uh, because we feel that the wear has returned to a more normal pattern once we've lowered that crown and arranged it so that it's going to wear more evenly. We've got to make sure they all are lowered to the same level, Brendan. We don't want one lowered down much lower than all the others so that the the uh, whole action of those cheek teeth where they um, work as a team, grinding against the, their, uh, um, their corresponding group of teeth on the uh, opposite arcade, the uh, upper or lower arcade. Um, we want them all at the same level so they're wearing at the same time. Yes, so it's it's trying to step one, getting rid of the the pain and and of those spurs that are sitting there. And I've had the same same types of cases like you just mentioned there, where where we'd have some of those lower cheek teeth spurs literally impaling the tongue, um, it's almost like putting a skewer, um, like a a, a, a kebab, um, a shish kebab, um, through through the um, tongue um, laterally there. So, and, and, and it's amazing that rabbit may have been look, um, coping and eating still um, up until a day or so before it finally decided to, to, to show signs of the pain and slobber in there. Yeah. So it's one, it's removing the, the obvious spurs there, but it's reshaping those teeth to provide a more normal occlusive surface for all of the four arcades there. So hopefully... As those cheek teeth grow back, um, 
they will continue to um, occlude a bit better than they were before and that um, eventually um, we'll be doing those dental treatments less often for that particular individual rabbit mark. Um, but the bad news is with those cheek teeth, as, as, as we both know and those who, who treat rabbits with dental disease a lot, it's a control long-term with a large percentage of these cases rather than cure because those teeth are always growing out on an abnormal angle from, from their tooth roots there. And we'll, we'll cover tooth root abscesses and, and the more complex um, surgical cases with these dental cases in part three, which we'll have in a, in a few more weeks, Mark. Have you got any closing thoughts about um, what we've gone through today, Mark? Um, I think the key thing that I'd say is that um, it's uh, where we started, having good access and good vision. Um, uh, and and I suppose the only other thing that we didn't mention in the process is that um, while rabbits are not as dramatic as maybe some of our other species, it is wise to get radiographs, I reckon. Um, there definitely are um, times when while lots of the disease will be above the gum line in the in the, um, the mouth and the crown of the tooth. There are um, times when the disease is um, deeper and, and uh, radiographs are extremely useful. Uh, but I think um, good access, good vision and, um, and uh, making sure that uh, um, you've got radiographic images to be confident of the health of the tooth roots and things are going to go well, Brendan. Yes, my minimum workup for these dental cases, if I haven't seen it before, will be a full clinical examination, almost certainly a, some sort of blood screen, um, general anaesthesia, oral examination and, and survey radiographs of the head. Um, because just seeing a spur on one cheek tooth, for instance, inside the mouth visually doesn't mean that um, that's the only tooth that's affected. So, yes. Um, so there we go. Um, part two of dental disease in rabbits and we will talk to you all next week thanks for listening thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.